Hello and welcome to Buy Positive. These are your hosts, Mari. NMD. And today we'll be talking about something that is, I, I'm surprised it's still controversial, but it is in a lot of ways, <laughs> and that is uh, female sexual and reproductive health. There's not a lot of education on the subject, neither in schools nor, you know, in everyday life. We kind of know about STDs, we kind of know about what goes where in heterosex, but as, as far as, you know, gynecological health is concerned, we don't know much. We have to go looking for the information. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, since we're going to be talking about vaginas and uteruses in general, this could also be useful information for people who were assigned female at birth, um, people who are in the possession of a vagina. First of all, I wanted to talk about kind of the most common reproductive problems that um, people with vaginas might issue, might uh, face, such as polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is pretty common. It's very common in uh, younger women um, between 18 and 44, and some statistics say that it's between 2 and 20% of you know, female-born people that have PCOS. And PCOS is basically just caused by high levels of androgens or um, male hormones in, in females. So you get either irregular or no, no periods, or you have very heavy periods. Um, some people have excessive body or facial hair. Some people have excessive acne. Uh, there's pelvic pain. There's difficulty getting pregnant if people are trying to actually get pregnant. And some people develop patches of really dark, thick skin on their bodies, uh, <laughs> which is quite interesting. And PCOS is comorbid with a lot of things. Most of them have to do with being overweight. They're comorbid with type 2 diabetes, with obesity, with um, sleep apnea, with heart disease, mood disorders such as depression and anxiety, and endometrial cancer. The causes or the risk factors are somewhat genetic. There is a genetic component. We don't know how much, really. And there's also an environmental factor, which is, as I mentioned before, obesity and um, diabetic inclinations. And so far, there's no cure for it, which is great news for us. Um, (laughs) um, There's ways to manage it. Uh, For some people, it works. For some people, not really. There's lifestyle changes like, you know, losing weight and uh, living healthier. Um, Some people take birth control pills just to regulate their periods to make them less painful. Some people have to take anti-androgens, so things that would block male hormones in the body. And Mm -hmm. if you want to get pregnant, there are chances that you might have to do in vitro fertilization um, because of all these hormonal changes. It's very difficult to conceive. So again, um, a gynecological problem that has no cure because it hasn't been investigated thoroughly. <laughs> and this PCOS has been around like medically. It has been around since the 1700s, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, but it's about women, so, you know. Yeah, no one really cares. Um, which leads me to the second most common and probably one of the most painful issues that um, some people face, endometriosis. You've heard it. I mean, it's on like every TV show, every medical TV show has something about endometriosis. I think Sex and the City had something about it. Like They throw the word around, but no one actually knows what it is. And it's pretty simple. So the the cells that are similar or the same as those in the endometrium, which is a layer of tissue that normally covers the inside of the uterus, that tissue grows outside of it. So basically Mm -hmm. it's like having, I don't know, muscle tissue growing on your skin and in in, in, uh, 
a layman's terms, it's the wrong kind of tissue. And most of the time it grows on the ovaries and the fallopian tubes and the tissue around the uterus and ovaries, but sometimes it could actually spread to other parts of the body. So you could have endometriosis in like your kidneys or your stomach or whatever. And it leads to a lot of pain. Most people with endometriosis experience pain in menstruation and pain during sex. But 25% of people don't have any symptoms, which is, I guess, good news. Um, some people discover it when they try to get pregnant and it turns out they're infertile because of it. Again, no clear cause. It may be genetic. It may be not. We don't know. Uh, there is some evidence that oral contraception helps manage the pain. And most people just take um, non-steroid anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen mm -hmm. for the pain uh, yeah. just to manage it because, again, there's no way of actually reducing the inflammation. About 10.8 million people were affected globally by endometriosis in 2015. And they say that the numbers are rising, not just because the population of the earth is rising, but also it's it's a disease that seems to have some sort of mutative processes going on. And, it, and it's just typically the kind of, of uh, disease and um, that, it, that really puts women between, you know, uh, a rock and a hard place because, and as well as any type of, you know, pain during periods or uh, impairments linked to, to all of that. Because there's, there's on the one hand so much stigmatization still around, you know, the female reproductive system. And, you know, you don't want to play into that then. You want to show that you're unaffected by your period or by your hormones. <laughs> that you're not going to start a war because you have a cycle. Yeah. Um, on the one hand. But on the other hand, that the reality that it's awfully painful and that it's a disease and that you want to get treatment and that you might need days off from work. Yeah. Uh, and so you're kind of stuck there. It's really difficult to maneuver to know how to talk about it, to get proper care for that, because you you don't want to, you know, you don't want to make a big deal out of it. Yeah. I feel like curling yeah. up on your bathroom floor for like three days, being unable to get up or eat anything because of how much pain you're in. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a big deal. It is. <laughs> it is. It is one. Because let's but face it, it, let's face it, if cis hat men suffered from something like that, we would have pills upon pills. We would have programs. We would have... That would be solved. We would have a cure. We would have a cure. We would have a cure, uh, obviously. But yeah. it's, you know, women, we, we're told a lot not to, to endure things. So yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of undiagnosed um, issues, not necessarily endometriosis, but difficulties, pain, pain issues that are, that most women don't just talk about. Yeah. Or just with two other women and, and try not make a fuss about it. I don't know. So my, my, um, you know, my experience around pregnancy mm. is that it's not a disease and you should be able to keep working and should make a difference. The truth is, is that sometimes, and even when it, you're not even showing yet, you're just exhausted and you just can't work. Yeah. But you have to. Well, that kind of brings me to the next uh, yeah. thing that I wanted to talk about. Because funnily enough, this one kind of has preventative measures because men do suffer from it. I mean, <laughs> cishet men, and that's HPV. Um, yeah. And in, in the context of cervical cancer, let's talk about cervical cancer first. So yeah. HPV yeah. is the human papillomavirus. It is uh, spread through, um, you know, mucosal contact. Um, and a lot of people actually have HPV. They just don't know they have it. Some people have HPV on their mouths and on their skin. Others um, develop it on their genitals. And HPV causes 90% of all cervical cancers, which is a huge number. Um, yeah. 
And those, uh, those cancers are also exacerbated or maybe triggered by someone who smokes, someone who has a weak immune system because that allows the virus to spread. Birth control pills are a risk, which is great because like you're trying to treat your endometriosis with birth control pills, but then you can get a, like a cervical cancer. It's, yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah, hilarious, not to mention all the other uh, fantastic side effects that I'm not going to go into mm -hmm. right now. And also they say that there is a certain degree of influence of early sexual intercourse that if you as a woman or as a person with a vagina engage in sex too early around the age of 16, it's too early, um, according to them, then you might have a higher risk of cervical cancer. And that research is a little debatable because of the societal influences on it, yeah. um, because it does sound a lot like slut shaming. <laughs> but there have been a couple of studies that have confirmed it. So I don't know. It's I'm still on the fence. Yeah, you might you might just also think that having sex younger might mean unprotected sex. Yeah, of course. Or just yeah, or just you know taking risks, and therefore you have a higher risk of infection because of that. Of course. And so, what happens when you have HPV on your cervix is um, certain changes uh, start happening in the cells, and certain cells that aren't supposed to be on the cervix start growing there, as is the case with endometriosis in a way. And those cells are precancerous. Um, they're called dysplasia. And they those changes, those precancerous changes, can happen over the course of 10 or 20 years. So you might not even know that you you know your your biology is changing in that way unless you have regular screenings and regular pap smears, which is why it's so important to go to the gynecologist at least once a year, twice a year if you can, because it's very important to catch it in the early stages. And the way they detect uh, these changes is by taking a biopsy, which they do hmm. uh, by loop electrical excision, uh, which is when they use electric currents to take a piece of um, of what's happening in there, yeah, uh, or cervical colonization. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's if they said if they um, to detect um, yeah. the, the like those cells are um, unclear, they were going to do the the biopsy, and then you can have the colonization, which is a removal of part of the uh, cervix. Yeah, and it, it, and can just prevent cancer to spread because actually cancer kind of has started already. Yeah, but it's, it's a precancerous condition. Stops. Yeah, it just it just stops. I, I, I and I, I, can, I can talk about it because I had I went to the, through that surgery. And it's it's my pap smear, my annual pap smear that basically I don't know if it saved my life, but it saved me from developing a full cancer. Yeah, it was very very um, it was growing fast, and I, I was I had the surgery in the in the next two months uh, following following the uh, the detection, and 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 that was really needed. And yeah, it's um, so it was not such a big deal to have that surgery, but it would have been a big deal if I had hadn't had that uh, you know routine pap smear that yeah. year. I mean, I'm sort of, I had a similar thing, even though I went through electrical excision, which is a little, it's it's a lighter version of, of what you described, because my pap smear also came back unclear, and the doctor wanted to go in and see what it was, and also to stop any sort of uh, dysplasia if it may be spreading. And it's not even a big deal, it's just like a 15-minute surgery uh, you're fully conscious, they inject you with some sort of anesthetic, you're there, um, it kind of smells like burnt chicken. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's worth it, uh, considering it could develop into something much worse. And yeah. I think both of us were kind of unlucky in the fact that we never got vaccinated against HPV. Yeah, I'm too old. <laughs> you were, you, you know, you were born before those things were in... Uh, mm -hmm. 
in the I, mainstream. I, yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, I was already sexually active when the 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 vaccine became um, and I told when the vaccine became available, and it was just available at, at that time. That's why I was sexually active for younger women who weren't sexually active yet. Yeah, they wanted to do the vaccination before. And so. I was born in Ukraine, which explains everything. <laughs> uh, I and, never, I never and, got vaccinated against it. And then there's a couple of studies showing also that um, bisexual and lesbian women tend to think that they don't need to get vaccinated or that they can't catch HPV because they're having sex with other women, yes, which you is can. not the case. Also, because you can uh, catch uh, HPV by other ways. Yeah. It's not just with sex. So... Um, you want to get vaccinated if you have a chance to. Yeah, and vaccinations are up to 90% effective. It's not a complete, you know, panacea for it. Uh, but they do offer at least 5 to 10 years of protection from HPV. Um, th those people who already have HPV, obviously, they're not going to be affected by the vaccine. So it makes no sense for you and I to, um, <laughs> to get that vaccine. And um, another thing is that males can also have HPV. It's the, the difficult part about that is that um, males, and I'm saying people with a penis, it's, it's harder to detect it because there is no pap smear for it. Uh, and so most of the time, you know, male assigned partners find out from their female assigned partners that they might have HPV. So you have to kind of yeah. go off of that. But the HPV vaccine is approved for male use in some countries, um, namely the mm -hmm. United States, Canada, the UK, um, China, and a couple of others. But it's still very uncommon. And it's still sort of stigmatized yeah. because men are like uh, whatever i'm just gonna put a rubber on it <laughs> but it's also associated with uh, anal cancer yeah. so um bisexual and i mean men who have sex with men do need to take that seriously as well yes uh the 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 rates are uh, pretty uh, pretty high like i see like 61 percent of uh, hiv negative and 93 percent of hiv positive gained bisexual men have anal hpv yeah. So yeah. bottom line is if you are having sex with someone and you know that you're HPV positive, you have to disclose your status and you have to take necessary precautions not to spread it, which is, I mean, very obvious. If you're a woman having sex with a woman, use a dental dam. If you're mm -hmm. having sex with a guy, use a condom. It's not rocket mm -hmm. science. We've talked about this before. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean... It's it's there about being honest with your uh, with a partner. Yeah, and the last thing I also wanted to mention, it's not as common. Um, I mean, it's not commonly pathological. Let's say that, and that's uterine fibroids, um, which is basically benign muscle tumors of the uterus. And for some people, there are no symptoms, which is why it goes largely undetected. Even though 171 million biological females are affected by it worldwide, which is crazy. And sometimes yeah. they cause painful or heavy periods, um, just like the other ones. And these tumors may also push on the bladder, which leads the person to want to go to the bathroom a lot, you know, very frequently. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's de determined by hormone levels. Um, some risk factors are obesity and eating red meat, which is also a little, like, questionable. And um, being um, black or African-American is apparently mm -hmm. also a risk factor. And these uterine fibroids are one of the most common reasons for hysterectomies. And a hysterectomy, in case you don't know what that is, that is the um, extraction of the uterus. So you're kind of getting gutted. And sometimes 
these um, these procedures are life saving. So if you have some sort of cervical or uterine cancer that has spread, or you know um, ectopic pregnancies or whatnot, hysterectomies are the way to go. And approximately six hundred thousand are performed each year in the U.S. alone. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's a very common procedure. It's obviously it leads to some side effects, uh, like you might have to take hormones, and you might you know you won't be able to get pregnant, obviously. But it will save your life. So, uh, it's a good thing. And before we move into talking about, um, Mm. more stigmatized things. Yeah. yeah. Just maybe also the the question of a hysterectomy for, um, for a trans man. Yeah. Whether or not they want to get it because there's, um, you know, there's kind of contradictory, um, information between the, um, taking testosterone and the risk of um, cancer yeah uh, uterine or um, or uh, ovarian cancer um, so I mean it's something that really need to, needs to be discussed because it's uh, it says um, there might be you know a risk factor for someone yeah. in the family that's making so it, there's here the the information is available is a little bit contradictory and that's something that really, really needs to be discussed for for trans men with their with their uh, healthcare provider. Yeah, and another thing is that in some countries, hysterectomies are required for trans men, so it's more of a societal thing as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. where you know you have to get sterilized, so to speak, if you want to transition, which of course I mean, is a very questionable thing. Um, if you want to be, if you have a legal transition, if you yeah, want to be able to. Yeah, for example, uh, in, I think I mentioned before that in Ukraine you have to get rid of your gonads basically if you mm-hmm. want to transition uh to the opposite yeah. gender so yeah it's <sighs> no it's longer the case in france it just changed yeah like last year but yeah and a little also a little side note because since we're talking about um reproductive and sexual health let's talk about stds just for a little <laughs> bit i mean we've we've talked about hiv there's a lot of information about hiv out there mm-hmm. we all know how to put a condom in a banana <laughs> Uh, but, you know, <laughs> HIV can also be spread between women who have sex with women. Surprise, surprise. So please do take necessary precautions if you know that you're HIV positive. Uh, there's PrEP. There's all sorts of um, different drug cocktails that can be used to prevent um, HIV from spreading in, in the person that is transmitted to. So uh, please do engage in that. Um, but also there are other STDs that are common in women. And most of these have the same symptoms which are itching, rashes, unusual vaginal discharge, and pain. Lots of fun. And uh, what is interesting is that more than 50% of new chlamydia and gonorrhea cases occur in women between the ages of 15 and 24. Very young women, probably making yeah. questionable choices or, or being pressured into questionable choices. So please, if you, know, if you are a young woman and someone is trying to coerce you into unprotected sex, think twice about having sex with them. <laughs> Yeah. And what's also crazy is that um, apparently one in five Americans, so 20% of Americans, has genital herpes, but up to 90% don't know that they have it, which is nuts. It means that people need to go to their doctor for annual checkups or biannual checkups, whatever. Just get tested if you know there's even a slim chance that you might have HPV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, or genital herpes because these things, not only are they visually gross, they're also very painful. And they can be spread yeah. to other people. And and things that aren't um, STI but need to be uh, taken uh, care. I mean, they can be trans. I mean, can it, it 
no, it's not. Those aren't STI uh, per se. Let's say that uh, that needs to be taken uh, seriously are also like all of the yeast infections yes. and also urinary um, tract infections. It's something that you really want to treat as fast as possible. Yeah, not only is it itchy as hell, believe me, I've had it. <laughs> it's it's very itchy, and if you have a UTI, then you're going to be running to the bathroom every three seconds. It's not fun. And no. it, they're very treatable at this point. Like, there there are plenty it, of antibiotics and pills that can yeah. be... It works very well. But if you don't do it, it can just go up to, to the kidneys. Yeah. And, like, and you're in big trouble if it, if it happens. And, again, if you know that you have some sort of pH, a pH imbalance in your mm -hmm. nether regions, do take care also. Use special soaps or pH-neutral soaps or whatever because... Some people are more inclined to, towards yeast yeah. infections. And another thing about yeast infections is that you do not use food in sex that has sugar in it because yeast yeah. thrives in sugar. So please yeah. do not use candy or fruit or whatever. Don't put it into your vagina because yeah. <laughs> there might be a chance that you're also giving yourself shrooms. Yeah. Not a good idea. And also, if you know that you can, you're prone to yeast infection. I mean, you, usually you you know what to use, and and uh, you have generally what you need at home. Yeah. But there's there's one thing that's those uh, rash and this this itchy feelings and and the kind of burning feeling can be not necessarily yeast. It can be some kind of bacteria as well. Yeah. So if the cream that you're using makes things work worse, it might not be the right one. Yeah. So you do need to see a healthcare provider at least once in a while for that kind of thing to make sure that you're not um, self-medicating wrong. Yeah. It, it does need to be seen by a professional and, and checked like what it actually is because some, some doctors just take a look at it, oh, yeah, that's it, and they give you a... And they don't check. And, and if you don't have the, the right cream, it can burn like hell. Yeah. Bottom line is, if your hoo-ha is itchy or burning or is, you know, developing green fluid... It's probably the time to go see a doctor. <laughs> and another thing that's very important to remember that we're not taught as biological females, painful periods are not the norm, yeah. okay? Because most of the time people are like, oh, periods are supposed to be painful. You're supposed to be in pain. There's a difference between slight twinging in your stomach and being unable to get up from your bed for a couple of days because your cervix is trying to eat itself. Do and keep and in mind that it's important... If you are in too much pain and you know for yourself what is too much pain, to go see someone who's a specialist and who will not dismiss your concerns. Because a lot of gynecologists do that, unfortunately. Access to, to healthcare is really, really important because there's uh, found this study in the US. Um, guess who are the least uh, likely to find uh, good healthcare? Bisexual people and bisexual women in particular. Wow, I'm so shocked. <laughs> So, yeah, do get to see a doctor and try to find someone who um, will be open-minded enough. It's not always easy, but it does exist. Yeah. Uh, who's open-minded enough to um, to listen to what you're really saying and not disregard the concerns because your sexuality is not the one they're used to. And even if you can't afford regular um, gynecological checkups... It's also important to at least get tested. There are tons of free clinics that do testing. They, you know, mostly HIV testing, but others as well, where you just need to pee into a cup and send it in the mail. There's nothing else you need to do. And that could potentially save your life. And to finish up, 
I also wanted to discuss the DSM-5 because the DSM-5 has a very interesting chapter on sexual disorders and uh, very controversial, very controversial, especially when it comes to the sections on uh, female-related illnesses. And of course, female here is used in the traditional cis definition. There's these things called female sexual interest and arousal disorder, female orgasmic disorder, and genitopelvic pain disorder. The criteria are wishy-washy at best. It's like if you are not interested in sex, you have a mental disorder, which of course, you know, asexual people would be like, what the hell? And also, let's face it, for a lot of people in straight relationships, a lot of women in straight relationships, arousal and orgasms may be a distant dream. So it's not as much on you as it is on your partner. (laughs) Yeah, and the um, the um, which is which is actually the, just the inability to 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 be penetrated. Yeah, uh, it's it's not necessarily psychological. Yeah, it's not. It can. I'm very no. surprised that genital pelvic pain is um, classified as a mental disorder because it can be psychological. Very rarely it can be, but most of the time, women have shallow vaginas or women have some sort of fibrous, you know, physical disorder that makes it painful, even any endometriosis that we already talked about. So it's very stigmatizing that, you know, according to the norm, as described in the DSM-5, a woman is supposed to be aroused, ready for sex, and have an orgasm every time, which is ridiculous because apparently all of us have mental disorders. (laughs) Um, Yeah, um, it's not surprising that there's still so much stigmatization around women's reproductive health and including making it a psychological disorder because when you think about the history of psychology one of the like the founding uh, book was the hysteria book from Freud and Breuer mm-hmm. and what is hysteria it's basically saying that women are crazy because of their womb it's a it's a little bit of a shortcut <laughs> but hysteria is literally based on i mean it, it means uh, it means mattress and and it's a womb it's a uterus so that's you have a disease that is typically feminine and it's because of your predictive system there's the the connection the association is in the name you think about it and it's still there because we can still use the name or we can talk about histrionic personality disorder hysteria can still be used especially in, in some other languages um, as, a, as a diagnosis uh, from a personality disorder. And, yeah. you know, maybe we should stop using it. I mean, vaginas do make me crazy, but in a very different way, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> My God. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah. also just saying, you know, if, if this whole hysteria thing, let's pretend it's true for a second, how does that hold up for trans men who still have their vaginas? How does it hold up for intersex people who may have a vagina i'm just saying i'm, I'm just throwing it out there but it's yeah yeah it's but it's you know it's about the uterus and but it's it's you know i mean we, we know how ridiculous it is but it, it does show where we're coming from if you are in the possession of a vagina it can be a beautiful thing as long as you take care of it um mm-hmm. and as long as you have access to a health care provider who will understand the specifics of tending to your particular vagina so if you are a queer woman <laughs> who has sex with women, your doctor needs to be aware that there is a thing that, that that's a thing that happens. And if you're a trans man who has a vagina or you're a non-binary person who has a vagina, then your doctor needs to be aware. Yeah. And um, as we were talking about a healthcare uh, provider, 
So it's just something that I want to mention because some people just want to us saying that they well, it's not that easy to find queer friendly therapists um, for them. Uh, so I mean, there's us, <laughs> <laughs> but also uh, for people based in the UK, uh, but also who could you know who could work with uh, with the British um, therapists. There's a website called uh, Pink Therapy where all like queer friendly therapists are um, registered and you can find people uh, who will understand you. Do take care of yourself, mind and body. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.